I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric and this is Next Question. Justin Baldoni is a producer, director, and actor who is probably best known for his long-running character on Jane the Virgin. On the show's five seasons, Justin played Rafael Solano, the sensitive reform playboy who fell in love with the titular Jane, a virgin. Jane, this, this, this is hard. We're doing everything backwards. I mean, we're having a baby and, and then we're going on our first date. But the actor, whose roles literally embodied a certain type of shirtless machismo masculinity, is on a new mission to help change the way men and society think about masculinity. This idea started out as a TED Talk back in 2017 called Why I'm Done Being Man Enough. I'm just a guy that woke up after 30 years and realized that I was living in a state of conflict. Conflict with who I feel I am in my core and conflict with who the world tells me as a man I should be. Then it spun out into a web series. So the show is called Man Enough. What does that mean to you? <laughs> this is a good question. <laughs> man enough. Have you? Man up. Be a man. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> and now it's a book called Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. It's a very personal book that shares a lot of Justin Baldoni as he explores what it means to be a man. Justin Baldoni, one of my favorite people. I'm so happy to talk to you. I love talking to you about so many different things. And we're here talking about your book. You've got a book out. How does it feel first and foremost? Because I'm scared to death for when mine comes out because you feel so vulnerable. It's pretty terrible, Katie. It's awesome and terrible at the same time. I always say as a filmmaker, every scene's two two things at once there's like joy and pain right and uh and this is a lot of excitement and it's also really terrifying because you're when you write it's like there's nothing more vulnerable than that you're writing your heart and your soul and you're putting it all out there for people to consume and you hope that they have an experience and you know that people will disagree and it's not like making a movie or you know making a show for you or, you know, doing a broadcast, it's, this is your life. This is you. So I'm not, I'm, I know I'm not making you feel any better, uh, but I'm so happy that you did it. Your life's, your book's going to be incredible. Well, tell me what the response has been so far to your honesty and your openness, your vulnerability, admitting your mistakes and really putting it out there. Uh, tell me what people have said to you about it. <laughs> Why? Well, I'm pretty sensitive. So I really, I don't go searching. I don't, I try not to read the comments. Um, I look Ever? at, um, I, I have this belief that I don't want to believe the bad or the good. I don't want, I don't want the court of public opinion 
to sway my own self-worth. Well, that's pretty hard to do these days, isn't it, Justin? It's extremely hard to do. And so, so what I think, I, I think about, it's, it's kind of like a conservation. It's a protection of my energy whenever I can. It's like this bubble. And I, and I, I just try to avoid looking for it. You know, there's the response has been really beautiful to be quite frank. I mean, I am, I have this text community. I think you're a part of it as well. And that's really kind of where I, um, I engage the most. And, uh, and you know, when I wrote the book, I wrote it as a service and it's always tricky because in our business, uh, service can be conflated with economic gain. Mm -hmm. And so it's really been this balance of remembering my why going back to what I actually write about in the book, the why ladder, remembering, remembering my purpose, what my intention was and not thinking about how many books are sold and all the stuff that inevitably the publisher is going to just pound into your skull. How many, all the Instagram lives, all the podcasts, all the posts that you have to do all and all to move books. But my purpose in writing, it wasn't to move books. It was to move hearts. And I have to remind myself constantly my why. And the why honestly was if one man can completely change or be open to looking at the world a different way, looking at himself a different way, looking at socialization and the way he behaves, the way he's um, adapted to our patriarchal society, the way he treats the women in his life, the way he treats himself. If that one man can adjust his behavior, how many women does that man interact with on a daily basis? How many how many queer trans men does that man interact with on a daily basis? His children, maybe he has children. And that, the amount of lives that that man can touch over the course of his lifetime is unquantifiable. You actually had a dry run for this book with your TED Talk in 2017. And just talk a little bit about what instigated that kind of aha moment. And you and I have talked about it before, but Give me the abridged version about why you decided to do this TED Talk and why it was really on your mind and you needed to share it with a lot of other people. Well, I, uh, I didn't want to do the TED Talk. I was terrified. First of all, I have a fear of public speaking. Um, I'm okay, like one-on-one. I'm sure there will be people that listen to your lovely podcast, Katie, but we're not in front of all of them, right? So I do have a bit of a fear of public speaking that I have to overcome. And, uh, and so that was one thing, but the other was, it was a Ted women talk. I was very early. This was, this was four years ago. I was in my opinion, very early in my journey of unpacking masculinity and unpacking my social socialization and how I even thought about it or looked at it or viewed it. I was early in my own discovery of my own unconscious biases I was just early. And it was one of those things where I just felt like I was, um, you know, when you start to build a little bit of a platform and you get a little bit of heat in our town, uh, in our industry, things kind of happen. And I just kind of felt like it was early. I wasn't ready for it. Kind of felt like, you know, <laughs> it was the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse, however you want to look at it. And so I tried to back out of it, honestly, uh, because I was like, well, there's, there's a, this should be given to another woman. This is Ted women. This should be given to a man who's been dedicating his life to do this. This should be given to a person of color who maybe hasn't had a platform. Why is, why am I doing this? And, and I wrestled with it. And what I, what I came around to was this, this idea that I'm being put in this position for a reason. And there's not enough men who have been given all of the intersections of privilege that I've been given, who have chosen to then speak out and challenge said privilege. And, um, and my message was never for women. It was always for men, <laughs> but I was speaking to women and that dry run was quite a painful run because while the, it was received very well by many women, it was also not received very well by many men. And Facebook put it out. They took like that two minute section of the talk where I'm like getting super passionate. I mentioned me too. And they put it out and they got like 50 million views in a couple of days. And I noticed this pattern of men reposting it and attacking me. 
and calling me names and saying, questioning my intentions and talking about my looks and saying, I'm all of these, you know, insults that, um, the, you know, this, they would, I don't even know half of the words that they use, but there's all these new insults, I guess. Um, women were praising it. And then what I thought was interesting was men were privately writing me and thanking me. So there was this very strange distinction between the public perception of what it meant to be a man and how men were uh, demonizing me and saying I was a traitor to my own gender, how women were publicly applauding me, but the men who needed it were privately writing me. And I went, okay, this is, this is a symptom of a bigger problem. And then that's when I went deeper and I realized that I needed a, a different platform. It wasn't a speech. I needed to find a way to get to a man and get to men where they could, they could listen, they could absorb privately and not have to feel pressure not have to feel like they're being uh, persuaded. And I, and, and, I, and it was very hard in an 18 minute Ted talk to reach men the way that I wanted to. And I, if I could go back, I would change, I think a lot of the way that I did that talk, but I was really, I was, yeah, I was young. I was nervous. I didn't know what I really wanted to say. I was getting so many thoughts from so many different directions. And I really wasn't, I don't know if I was as grounded in, in um, my, who I am as I am now. What do you think is behind toxic masculinity? Because certainly you see plenty of it out in the world. Uh, it seems to undergird a lot of these white supremacy movements. It seems to be permeating the culture. And what do you think it is? Is it fear? Is it kind of the backlash of being more inclusive? When you talk to people who are not buying what you're selling, why is it, do you think? Well, first of all, I don't say toxic masculinity. And I write that early on in the book. Um, I think toxic masculinity has been misused and it's been weaponized and it's been politicized, which is one of the reasons why we have this big gap that needs to be filled. And I think the key to filling that gap is compassion and empathy and seeing each other. Um, and so when I, when I talk about masculinity, what I've learned over the last five years where I made mistakes maybe in uh, the way that I was presenting what I was quote unquote selling, as you say, um, is I wasn't thinking about how men feel. Not how they like feel deep down, but how they think they feel. Because we haven't been taught to feel. We haven't been taught to ask ourselves questions about how we feel about anything, which is one of the, the myths of masculinity, right? We have to go at it alone. We can't ask questions. So we don't, we're not even aware of how we're feeling, I think. And because we've had to, as Bell Hooks says, engage in soul murder or that psychic act of self-mutilation from a very early age, um, we are only allowed to feel anger and rage, which really, if you going back to your question, if you think about uh, what would one would say a toxic version of masculinity is, it is a lot of unexpressed sadness and loneliness, um, fear, uh, depression, isolation, um, feeling like they don't belong, feeling not enough. And it's turned into rage and it's turned into anger. Um, it's turned into violence. Uh, so I don't say that because that's one of the things that is a, that's one of the barriers to peace. As an example, it's one of the barriers to unity. It's one of the barriers to empathy and compassion. So if I'm out here quoting toxic masculinity and, you know, Joe from wherever he's from feels like the feminist movement is attacking him because he's not good and he should apologize for being a man. He's not going to hear anything that I have to say, which is why the book is written from a very open place of, Hey, I'm a dude. <laughs> I'm a straight white guy. I have all, I, I, I grew up an athlete. I'll go play sports with you. Like I'll hit the weights with you in the gym. Could probably kick your ass on the field, but I'm also suffering from a problem that I helped perpetuate. And I didn't realize I was suffering. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the ways that I'm hurting myself and I'm hurting others. So I, I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but I think that it is a lot of things. It's the socialization. It's the feeling like, as you know, as we know, uh, equality for those of us with privilege can feel very similar to oppression. And this idea that, no, we're not actually taking from us. We're not taking 
and redistributing. We're, we're sharing. There's plenty to go around. It's like, there's, there's, there's plenty of pieces of pizza for everybody. <laughs> um, and that's just one of the things that I think we have to, to work on and that we're talking about here. You know, what would you say the thesis of this book is? Because it has, your message has evolved through the years. Well, the reason I say we're undefining masculinity instead of redefining it, was, which was what I was saying for years, was because I realized in doing my own work and looking at my own socialization, the way that I have been brought up as a man and my feeling of not being enough, despite having and the world telling me that I um, should be, is that by redefining what it means to be a man, I would be excluding. I would be creating the same problem again. I'd be creating a different looking box. And first of all, who the hell am I to redefine anything? I'm not a, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a gender studies expert. I haven't written treatises on this. I'm just, I'm just a guy trying to figure out what works and what doesn't for me and why I've kept hurting people over and over again and hurt myself. And I realized, and this kind of goes back to your first question, is, and what led me on the journey is that I was tired of hurting people and I was tired of hurting myself. I was tired of uh, putting on masks and armor that I didn't know I was wearing. I was tired of acting different based on who I was around. I was tired of puffing up my chest when I was around certain men that I felt insecure around or women. Um, and that happens over and over and over again. And I just didn't know why I just couldn't be unapologetically me. And, uh, and that led me on this journey over time. And the thesis is to undefine it, to make room for anybody who identifies as a man to be allowed to feel and be a man. And to, and to get rid of all of these pressures, these ridiculous patriarchal pressures that tell us we have to be X enough to be this, X enough to be that, X enough to be this. And to just remember that, that we have been created noble, that we are enough just as we are. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, how to be man enough amid the Me Too movement. That's right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know, you and also society has been talking about this for a long time. You know, this is not women have been talking you know, about this for yeah, a long time. Yeah. And maybe not men, but still, I think, you know, just being in the media as long as I've been, Justin, this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. And I'm curious why more progress hasn't been made 
and really investigating these sort of male archetypes and standards and pressures. And, you know, you talk about not only toxic masculinity being a bad, misleading and toxic phrase, you talked about the guy code and grow a pair. I'm just curious why we haven't made more progress. And I also, I have a, this is a two-parter. And I wonder how has kind of um, Me Too and Time's Up and this reckoning about gender equality and also racial equality that we've seen almost simultaneously, if that has made, made it worse in some ways, that men are gravitating towards kind of clinging to their masculinity in a way that maybe the grip was starting to be looser. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. I'm trying, let me, let me try to, Katie Couric, the brilliant Katie Couric. No, I'm not. Let me, let me try to, let me try, let me try to um, start with the first one. What's coming to me is if you take somebody who's in power and you say to that person, hey, I want to redistribute some of your power. It might be uncomfortable for a second, but don't worry, you'll still have power. <laughs> It'll just look different. Because we live in a culture where power is, um, is in such high demand, but there is so little supply, that person is going to tense up and they're not going to want to relinquish that power. We see it play out over and over again. We've seen it play out throughout history. We see it play out in elections, and politics, and it's just, that's just the dynamic of our system. And that, that power is the patriarchy. And that power benefits men more than it would benefit women. The, the issue is that we are, we are, you know, women have been, fighting for this. <laughs> I mean, you just, you just go back in history. I mean, just, just the fact that women had to fight for the right to vote. It's not that long ago. We're talking about our, gr our grandparents could have touched this, right? And the same thing in the fight for racial justice. We're talking about our parents touched it. So we're just generations in to this idea of what equality looks like. And as we know, we learn masculinity generationally and socially and culturally. So I go back to that quote, like for those with privilege, equality can feel like oppression. So what you have is you have these marginalized groups of people fighting because they're not being heard. And all the oppressors, all the, all the, the in this case, men um, are looking at this and it doesn't make any sense to them. Because in their mind, we're making progress. In their mind, it's like, what are you talking about? There's equality. That woman just took my job, right? That's how, that's how we're, we think about these types of things. And that power redistribution feels like a power loss. The other issue is that we, I don't think we know how to talk to each other. And, you know, and look at, I mean, look at the feminist movement. And again, I'm not a scholar and I, I I'm clear in the way that I wrote the book. I wrote the book from a personal perspective because there were not, uh, there are not many books written like this. There's a lot of books about data and facts and history, but not from a personal perspective where men can be invited into their own story. And just even, you know, even, even the evolution of feminism, I believe that feminism, right. The, 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 the radical notion that women are people. The women are human beings. Um, the, the dismantling of a patriarchy to create a more equitable and just uh, framework and system for everybody, including men, benefits men. But we take the parts of every movement um, that are the most threatening, the 2% of people, right? The 2% the of, of women who maybe made up their stories and the Me Too movement. And then we use those 2% as a way to discount the other 98. And we do that throughout history. And of course, throughout the feminist movement, you had, you had segments who were anti-men. You had segments who were anti-men, who hated and who justifiably were angry. And so what do we do as men? We take those 2% 
and we say the feminist movement hates us. It's bad for us. They're out. They're angry. They're feminazis and all the things you hear a lot of these people say. When in reality, the majority of feminist women that I know love men. Want men to be happy. Want men to be joyful. Don't want men to suffer. Want there to be equality and equity. And what I believe men are not realizing is that the system is not working for men. We might be looking at the, the, the power dynamic of our system. And, and in some ways, we think it's good. We should fight for things. We should want things. But the patriarchy is built on a domination and a power grab. And what that means is that we're actually left feeling like less than far more than we are feeling like we're enough. As men, we're suffering collectively and we're hurting but we don't have the tools to know that we are hurting because nobody we're not able to talk to anybody about it. We don't even know that we're hurting. How many how much room is there at the top? There's room for a couple of people, but the rest of us men are not at the top. Men men are are working 9 to 5 jobs that they hate. They're breaking their backs. They're trying to provide and protect their family. They're doing all of these things they've been told that they must do in order to feel like a man at the cost of their at the cost of their soul the cost of their spirituality, the cost of their joy and their happiness, and therefore, and then are hurting other people in their lives. They're hurting the women in their lives. And when we're trying and we're trying to gain power and we can't gain power over men and we don't feel like we're enough in our jobs or wherever we are, where do we gain power? We gain power in our interpersonal lives, gain power over the women in our lives because maybe we're physically stronger. We gain power over marginalized groups. And and again, so if you, you, you kind of, take that whole picture and you look at that and then you understand, well, men don't know how to take feedback. We don't, we haven't been taught how to take feedback. We've been taught that we have to defend ourselves. We have been taught we have to put on our armor that we have to be right. We can't ask for direction. So, so if, if a movement is trying to change things and we're saying this isn't working, I mean, just look at the, not all men thing, right? We can't even hear feedback that the majority of women don't feel safe. They don't, it's not that they don't feel safe around other women. Women aren't doing the raping and the killing. Women aren't doing, women aren't, aren't sexually assaulting other women. Men are. But yet we have to defend ourselves and say, not all men. There's no space for growth. There's no space for any of it because men feel like they're being attacked. When in reality, they're not, which is why the reason I don't think there's been progress is because we feel like power is being taken away from us. We feel like we're bad, we're wrong, we're not good. Well, clearly we just, you know, we're just terrible people. It's like, and we become so fragile. Our male egos are so fragile because that's what the patriarchy has done. It makes us so that our masculinity can be taken from us as if there's such thing as emasculation, as if this is a right that can be taken away. And that's not how it works. Femininity can't be taken away. Do you think men have found Me Too and Time's Up and this reckoning uh, about sexual harassment and gender equality uh, similarly threatening? Do they have they kind of dug in their heels as a result of it? What have you seen on the landscape because of that? Yeah, this is the scary part is it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because, um, look, you, we're getting our information now from places we want to get our information. We get our news, we get, we we're educated by people that we agree with. So we're living in these silos of, of misinformation and you see it everywhere. And unfortunately, I think the Me Too movement um, scared a lot of men. Because I don't know one man who hasn't treated a woman um, like an object. I don't know one man who over the course of his life uh, in this patriarchal system where he must prove his masculinity didn't do so at the expense of women. And so when you have a movement like Me Too which thank God it exists because that, that, again, that first, that, that pendulum swing is really uncomfortable because it has to be, 
But when you have a movement like Me Too, what it brings to the surface is all the things we've all done as men that that we're embarrassed of or not proud of. And what's scary about the Me Too movement for men is that then suddenly that can become public. So I looked around and I saw men everywhere like, okay, am I next? Am I next? Because we've all done something we're not proud of for the sake of our masculinity, for the sake of wanting to be accepted, for the sake of wanting to gain power because we're taught from such a young age, we have to. So unfortunately, what do you, what, I heard what everybody else heard, which is I can't hire a female assistant. And I'm saying, why? <laughs> well, you know, because I don't know, I mean, if I say the wrong thing or what if I hug her, or, but there's no vocab. So men didn't have the vocabulary. The answer is not to not hire a female assistant. The answer is to ask for permission. If you, is it, can I give you a hug? The answer is to, to communicate. The answer is to, to, to like, look at your behavior, right? But we don't want to change things because change is uncomfortable. So do you think it stopped progress when it comes to men evolving and looking at at, at how they are? Or do you think it's, it's actually encouraged? I think it helped. It's like the day after you go to the gym, you're working out. The day after you go to the gym, sometimes two days later, you're really sore. You can't move. But the soreness is good. The soreness means your, your muscle fibers tore. Blood is filling up those injuries. And as they're forming and coming back together, they're, they're coming back together stronger. And so I look at it as we're a couple days out of the gym. And the Me Too movement was necessary. It was progress. It was painful on both sides. I mean, the fact that women had to relive their traumas over and over and over again. I had so many conversations with people that I love who were sharing their stories, but in sharing their stories, they were re-traumatizing themselves for what happened. So there's healing that happens and there's also re-traumatization because it has to happen and they and they did it because it was a part it was necessary but we're in the we're 2 days out and we're sore but it'll benefit us because what's happened is that men have, are thinking and even if there are there is a group of men who have put up their shields and are ready for battle there's always going to be those groups that are resistant to change when we come back Porn addiction, how Justin was able to share even his deepest insecurities for all to read. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I 
I want to talk to you too about your personal story because so much of this is, you know, it, it is a manifesto, but it's a deeply personal story. And you talk about body issues, relationship issues, pornography issues, yeah. which was was something that, that affected you when you were just 10 years old. Um, and <sighs> so were these things all really difficult to be honest about? I mean, did you have to kind of put aside any trepidation or any embarrassment or inhibition, I guess, to kind of like, oh, yeah. hey, I mean, and 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 maybe talk about how you were able to expose that side of you and what that side of you was, Justin, too. Well, uh, yeah, Katie, it was, it's terrible because <laughs> these are things that you talk about in therapy. But the problem is, and even with my close, my best guy friends is that we struggle being truly vulnerable with each other. And I would say I have a pretty progressive group of male friends. Just the fact that we're willing to check in with each other, ask how our hearts are, have these conversations. But there's so many times we've left individually and I've left my other friends feeling worse about myself because I felt alone because even in my quote unquote progressive group of friends, of male friends, people struggle with sharing their vulnerability, sharing the parts of them that aren't working, sharing the, sharing their addictions or whatever it is, their fears, because we have to, it's like a conscious unlearning, unpacking in real time. It's like literally taking off your armor and saying, it's okay if I'm shot. Because we've been, it's been reinforced that we're not allowed to share. We're not allowed to tell another man something that could be used against us. Because we, no matter how we slice it, we think that that's going to make us less than him. Maybe we won't be as valuable to the group. So all of that was underneath everything that I wrote. And I just kept thinking about that guy, me, who desperately needed to hear that he wasn't the only person suffering, who desperately needed to hear that he wasn't alone, who desperately needed to hear that he's battled whatever X issue, porn, body image. He doesn't feel like he's enough in whatever area. And that was what gave me the strength to keep doing it. But, but I did not plan on writing the book this way. It was through the writing process. I would start writing and then suddenly these stories would come out and I'd remember what happened to me when I was 10. <laughs> and as I was writing, I was connecting the dot back to my struggle as a 30-year-old. And, and in the writing process, I recognized that there, you, you can't separate the two things. And they're all a part of the same thing. So it was necessary, but it was... It's, it was terrifying because the fact of the, the fact remains like, yeah, all of this can be used against me, but I also hate pedestals and the performative wokeness thing doesn't serve anybody. I mean, I, I just had a conversation with a dear friend of mine who told me that one of the most abusive men that she's ever dated wore a, this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt. And this is why people are sick. This is why people don't like religion. This is why people don't like, you know, wokeness or woke culture and all this stuff, because you have, you have, um, actions that differ from words in the Baha'i faith. We're told, let deeds, not words be your adorning. True faith is an abundance of deeds and a fewness of words. And that's where we got to get to where it's about, okay, take me off the platform, this platform. Sure. I'm sharing these things. But that doesn't, that's how low the bar is. <laughs> like the bar is that low that a man can talk about some of these things and suddenly be praised. Take me off. I don't need to be praised. What I need is for other men to see themselves in my story and start to have their actions impacted, start to treat the people in their lives differently, starting with themselves. What do we do though? You know, Justin, we're all products of our cultural conditioning. Yeah. And I did a whole podcast on violent porn, which is so scary because kids are being exposed to this at a very early age. And it's about 
you know, sex and how this is translating into intimacy. And it is so scary how easily accessible it is. And I know that you were exposed to it when you were just 10 years old. And what, what do we do about that? Because I think also there's a huge vacuum and it's that it's being filled with, in many cases, violent porn. It's a, what, $12 billion annual industry. Yeah. Um, And I, I don't know what to do about it. I think it's a really large question. I think, again, we have to first remember that it's an industry. An industry wants to sell you something. What's interesting about the porn industry is that very similar to um, the tech industry, it's about users. (laughs) Users, right? So they're acquiring users. You use porn. And I think the biggest problem we have is a lack of education. And a um, a lot of that comes from us not being willing to talk about one of the most basic human things in existence because we've made it taboo. Think about, think about two of the things that are the most taboo in our culture to talk about death and sex, but yet we need sex to procreate and we all are going to die. All of us are. That's why I spent the last 10 years doing my last days, which is how we first met. Right. And telling the stories of people who were dying to help us learn how to live because we can't run away from it. It's going to happen. So why are we running away from sex? I, in writing this book, was transported back to being 10 and learning about my body, not from my parents, kind of from other boys, but more than anything from porn. If we're embarrassed to talk about it, if we're embarrassed to talk to our kids about it, if we don't tell our boys that their bodies are going to change. They're going to start getting erections that they can't control. That's going to pop up everywhere. They're going to start like lusting after like things. They're going to start wanting, you know, if we don't prepare them for that, where are they going to go? And if we then associate those things with shame, then their sexuality becomes shameful and they only, they look for it in the dark. They look for it alone. And what, and then we can't control what they watch. And as we know, look, there was a study that was done, I put it in the book, where they, they looked at the brains of people that were, while they were watching porn, and what they found was that the part of the brain that lit up while someone was watching porn was the part of the brain that associated the images with objects, not people. So if you think about like, yeah, you mix in violence, but you also mix in the fact that you're watching objects. If you're a heterosexual man, you're watching women, the woman is an object. You compound that with how we're taught, how we are taught to talk about women, how we get a girl possession, possessive objects, how women are less than in our vocabulary. Being a girl means is synonymous with being weak. And then you put all that together. And of course, of course, there's a correlation between rape culture and violence and sex and porn because that's the system that we have. So what the solution I think is the first step is we have to be willing to talk to young people about their bodies and not be embarrassed or ashamed. We have to be willing to explain that sex is necessary for human procreation in many ways, and that it's not a bad thing. It's not a shameful thing. Let's put some guide, let's put some rules around it. Let's teach our, let's teach boys at an early age what consent looks like, because I can tell you, I didn't learn consent. Nobody had the conversation with me. What did I think consent was growing up? Well, well, in porn, no means yes. No, 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 no. It just means you keep trying. And what do the boys tell us? Right? How many no's gets a yes? This is, this is the culture. So of course, of course, women don't feel safe. Of course, one in four, one in five women are going to be raped in their lifetime. Because this is what we're teaching our boys what to, how to do. Primarily through porn. Primarily through porn and through the socialization of what it means to be a man through other boys. 
the getting of women, the conquering, right? Those types of things, the power dominance, the power struggle. If we can't get power in one place, we got to get power somewhere else. And then of course, porn is, a lot of porn is extremely violent. And we learn about that. We think women want that, but nobody's ever, like if, if, if as boys, we were to ask women and also let's just be clear, women are also socialized in the same way. So we're not like not, it's not like boys are socialized in this vacuum. Women and men are socialized in the same way. And there's a lot of unlearning on both sides that has to happen. And women also watch porn. And in some ways, I want to be very clear. I'm not calling out the whole porn industry because I know, I know a lot of folks who have been oppressed in their life as queer and gay folks who then have seen that for the first time and felt like they weren't alone too. So, but at the end of the day, it's an industry. And I do believe it's doing far more harm than good. You also dig into your own experience with racism and your own reality of your racism. And and I'm curious how hard that was, because that, again, Justin, is unlearning certain attitudes and stereotypes that I think subconsciously and consciously are kind of promoted and fed to us from a very young age. Well, yeah, that one was really hard. I really had to look at my own behavior. And as I was writing the book, of course, it was over the pandemic and George Floyd was murdered. And this again was just another example, but this time it was nine minutes and it was caught on video. And it struck different as it did for a lot of white folks. And, um, and I just went back and I remembered all of the little conversations I've had with my black friends and the defensiveness and my not willing to advocate as much as I've advocated for gender equality and sexism, which showed me that I was more defensive about it. That's all it did was it showed me like, oh, why wouldn't I fight as hard for the elimination of racial prejudice as I do for the equality of women and men? There's something, there's a, there's something missing, especially because it's growing up as a Baha'i. I'm told that you can't separate these two things. Injustice is injustice. Like, you know, racial prejudice is, if anything, the most persistent evil in the world. Um, and, uh, and I just had to dig in and I had to look at it and I'd ask myself, why, why am I defensive about it? What is it about, what is it about this subject that is more uncomfortable for me and maybe for other white folks? And I hadn't seen the example of other people really going into detail about ways that they've been racist. And I think, I think everyone's afraid of cancel culture, maybe a little bit and being held accountable. But if you look at that, generally, that's when somebody is not willing to look at their stuff. It's not willing to bring themselves off of the quote unquote pedestal. And how can we learn? Like if this is for white folks, how can, how can we white folks learn if we don't have that example? If I don't know the ways that Katie Couric is messed up, I look up to Katie Couric. Well, how has Katie Couric failed in this way? Well, one, it'll make me feel better, but two, I can learn from your mistakes. And I, I wasn't seeing that anywhere. I wasn't seeing that on Instagram posts. I wasn't seeing anybody talk willingly, like willingly about ways that they have messed up and not, and, and been racist or mistreated black folks or, or been a bad friend. And so I been going through the process. It was also healing for me. I share a story about my friend Kay and I, I share one of my best friends, Jamie, um, and, and the, and there's a lot more conversations than these. And I did it because I want other white folks to know that it doesn't make them a racist or a bad person to have been brought up in a system that without realizing it, um, (laughs) awards those of us that look a certain way differently, gives us a head start, if you will. And of course, we're going to say things that are dumb and we're going to hurt people. But we have to recognize that and then we can move forward and we have to apologize for it and come to terms with it. And not everybody's going to want to accept our apology. And that's okay too. So it was really hard. I'm I'm grateful I did it. It's one of my favorite 
pieces of feedback has been from white folks who say that chapter changed their perspective on the movement. Because again, just like the fragile male ego, we have the fragile white ego. You know, as a dad and as someone who writes a lot about experience that you had as a younger man, what can we start doing for this next generation? I feel like they're so far ahead of us. I mean, you're are you a millennial, Justin? Or are you like a, I am what considered, are you? I'm considered an old millennial. An old millennial. I'm like, I'm a geriatric millennial. And I'm a young baby boomer. <laughs> You're a baby, baby boomer. I'm an old millennial. I think 40 is the cutoff now. I'm 37. So you, you've got, I don't, I'm not going to, well, I will say I'm 64. And what, what can be done amazing. to help, help, uh, it's all, all, all about the ring light, honey. <laughs> What can be done to to help your kids and my kids? And, you know, we talk about the suicide rate being so high. I think the average person who takes their own life is a 47 year old male. And and how can we start shifting things? So attitudes change and behavior changes. I think it starts it starts very young. I think it starts in our parenting, honestly. Um, I go back to that idea of being imperfect, which is the, I think that's where perfection lies. And, you know, raising our kids to recognize their own value, their own worth, their own enoughness, to not seek it externally. Uh, you know, one of the ways so I'm raising good my luck in this day and age. Well, with one that. of the ways, I, well, one of the ways I'm, you know, I'm thinking about how the world's going to be socializing my daughter and my son, and how the world's going to be telling my daughter that she has to be one thing and how my son has to be another thing. Emily and I have been saying, okay, well, how do we, how do we start to reverse that damage early on and to build strong foundations? And so we teach our daughter at home the opposite: that she can take up all the space she wants, that she can be loud that she can take physical risks, that she can be brave and strong and tough. Um, at the same time, not, not having her kill off the sensitive parts of herself like we make boys do. And she can be a full human being. And we teach our boy that it's okay to ask questions, that it's okay to be sensitive, that it's okay to cry, that it's okay to ask for help when he's hurting, to express himself. That it's also okay to not take physical risks. That it's okay. We got to be mindful of the space that he takes up because the world is going to tell him he can take up as much as he wants. So that's one way. That's one thing that we're doing while also just allowing them to be who they are and not trying to change them. So one way is I think the way we're intentionally raising our children. Um, the other way is as parents, by modeling the behavior, we want our children to grow up accepting. And oftentimes as parents, we try to hide our imperfections. We try to hide our flaws. We try to be superheroes when in reality, all we're doing is setting our kids up for failure, for expectations that will never be met. And what are expectations? They're just planned disappointments. So when, we, when we're flawed, when we're human, when we cry, when we're angry, when we use that as teaching opportunities to let them know that we are flawed and imperfect because the more that we can raise our children to recognize their own enoughness, the more they're going to not have to seek their validation by making someone else feel like they're not enough. The other part of all, <laughs> the other part of this whole thing is that we have to learn to see each other. We have to see each other and listen to each other, even when we're listening to things that maybe are uncomfortable. We can't be so fragile in our identities and so attached to our beliefs and our politics that it prevents us from seeing another segment of the population, from seeing our own family members. We have to be open. We have to be willing to learn, to be curious. That is the thing that's going to, I think, solve more than anything, is, is helping people realize that they are not their faults. They are not their insecurities. They are not their subconscious racist behavior. They are not their sexist behavior. It doesn't make, there's no like, there's no, there's no perfect person. There's no good or bad, except that which makes it so. 
We're just people, all of us trying to figure out what the hell we're doing on this floating rock, knowing we only have a limited amount of time on this earth and trying to be happy and and create a world that is sustainable that our children can inherit. None of us know. And we're surviving. We're trying to put keep roofs on our heads. We're, and I think that if we can just have empathy for each other. And again, I recognize it's easy to say in the position of privilege that I'm in, but if we can just go back to having empathy for each other, not apathy, empathy, then we'll start to see each other and recognize our enoughness as, the, as we are. And little by little and day by day, things will improve. And that's kind of all I got. I mean, we could go deeper and deeper and deeper, but no, I think no, that's what no. it comes I down to. I think that's great. And I know you're writing books to kind of address this so people can expand their minds, kids at an early age and stop before it's too late, honestly. And is it too late? I mean, I've, I've had, again, my neighbor is 85 years old, saw me on one of the Today Show or whatever and asked if he could read the book and I gave him a signed copy and he's telling me how much he's learning. I'm hearing from guys in their sixties and seventies saying, wow, this is the, I, I, this is the first time I'm seeing myself. I've read all the, I've read other masculinity books, but nobody ever talked about their own problems. And I see my, pro, I see my stuff in yours. And, and that's what it comes down to. Is it ever too late? I don't know. I don't think it is. My dad, 73, learning, evolving, growing, having conversations he's never had before that were never modeled for him. I believe so much in our capacity as human beings to remember, to remember our innate worthiness, our goodness, our humanity. I don't think it's ever too late. Thank you to Justin Baldoni, such a nice guy. His book is called Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. Oh, and just a heads up, dear listeners, my memoir, Going There, is coming out on October 26th. Yikes. And I'll be heading on a national book tour, like in person, fingers crossed. To find out when and where I'm headed and to get your tickets, check out ticketmaster.com slash going there. So I hope to see you guys on the road. On the next installment of my summer book series, when you play a character for seven years, it can be hard to let her go. She was so, so embedded under my skin. I still, when I would see that scene or think of that scene, tear up. Juliana Margulies on Alicia Florick and the memoir she wrote after The Good Wife came to an end. I wanted to start exploring who I was and not just this person running in circles trying to make it, everything work. That's next week on Next Question. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.